Well, if you have your Bibles, if you would, open them to 1 Peter, or your phone, <laughs> uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, as we are continuing our series in something that I called last week, Preparing for Spiritual Battle. This will be Preparing for Spiritual Battle Part 2. And just listen as I read the three verses for this morning, 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll be focusing on just verses 1 through 6 to get the context. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you, to have worked out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, maligning you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For to this the gospel has been proclaimed, even to those who are now dead, so that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they live in the spirit according to the will of God. Some of you might know, but when I was a boy, my father used to tell me stories about World War II, and he would talk about the time that he served in the U.S. Navy in the Pacific Theater. And he spoke of one of the memorable times that often came to his times where he would speak to us was what a woman that used to be called by the GIs, Tokyo Rose. Tokyo Rose. So I can see some of you remember. Tokyo Rose was the siren of the Pacific. She was the seductress call out to the lonely American servicemen in a sultry voice over the Japanese radio waves, inviting them toward distraction. On the radio, she would insult the soldiers. Uh, She would talk about their eventual demise. She would taunt them. Tokyo Rose and really all the women who were unknown under that name was a part of an imperial Japanese effort to demoralize enemy soldiers using this radio propaganda. Most of the shows followed this kind of format. First, there was music introduced by a female disc jockey. Then there would be prisoner of war messages, news from America gleaned from American sources, and insults pointing at allied war efforts. The news from home generally was in the line of informing the soldiers of natural disasters that had happened, such as letting them know that American ships had sunk, uh, allied battles had been lost, and just about anything else that would try to demoralize these soldiers. What the main message that they used to try to demoralize these soldiers was this. It had three points. Your president is lying to you. This war is illegal. You cannot win the war. Your president is lying. The war is illegal. You cannot win the war. And this ploy designed specifically to make these soldiers vulnerable who listened to it before they were going to run out into battle. It was a concentrated effort to make soldiers long for the former ways of their life in civilian times by telling them that the war efforts were to no avail. It was an organized attempt directed to make a homesick soldier hope that the battle would end and he would surrender first and foremost in his mind before his boots ever hit the sand. I tell you this because the Bible warns us of this same kind of temptation for the believer. 
2 Timothy 2.4 says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. A soldier, very important, can never return to his pre-war life once the battle began. A soldier must always be preparing for the war set before him. This morning I say that because we're returning to 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6 as we're concerning and and considering this Christian's need to be prepared for war. This is preparing for spiritual war part two. We are engaged, as you know, in a spiritual war and therefore verse 2 of our text this morning says that we are armed. We are to be armed for the spiritual battle. Now, what is the nature of this battle, you might ask, and who is the enemy in this battle, you might find surprising. that The nature of this battle is spiritual, and the enemy in this battle is our flesh, our flesh. Though we often associate the enemy in a war as a person, a man or a woman, who has come to us, as the apostle said once in his writings, as a thorn in the flesh, here, Peter is saying, however, the true enemy is not seen in an individual person, but rather that the true enemy is the Christian's own desire to live for the lust of men. The unbeliever is not the enemy. The enemy of the Christian, though they are often painted that way, are not unbelievers, but rather the unbeliever is a mission field. The true enemy of the Christian is their own selfish desire to resist suffering. The greatest enemy of the Christian is not the secular world, but rather the sinful lust within them. Very important for us to grasp. Though we have been delivered from the penalty of the wrath of God to come, we can nevertheless fall prey to the power of worldly temptations that woo us to return to the vomit from which we came. Instead of living for the will of God, we are tempted to live for the desires of the world. Being born again from above does not keep us from the disease of sin. We struggle. We struggle with temptation. We fight against our own longings, and the longings are to return to our former way of living. And yet Peter tells us here this morning that this battle needs to be won once and for all. Now, last week we saw how the greatest incentive to prepare for a spiritual war comes through our consideration, first and foremost, of the suffering of Jesus Christ, because he is the very personification of the righteous sufferer. We're to hold him up at, in battle as the ultimate warrior, and we covered that last time. His temptation, his, his ultimate victory, his pursuit of righteous living is to be our model. And yet, as we meditate upon Peter's portrayal of Christ's godly life, we see that the emphasis seems to be more upon his submission to unrighteous authority than anything else. Peter tends to emphasize how our Lord stood up under the harsh treatment from godless men more than even any other temptation. Peter tells us that he was silent before his accusers. He did not revile while being reviled. He was humbled even as they nailed him to a cross. And so Peter exhorts his readers to have the same perspective on submission as Christ did to unrighteous authorities. They are to arm themselves with the same weapon that our our Lord armed himself with. Namely, they are to possess a mind that trusts God the Father in every aspect of their lives. But this isn't the only battle. This isn't the only battle before us. They need to be prepared, Peter says, to resist something 
that our Lord never had to resist. They need to resist returning to their past sinful lives. How can you prepare for that? Well, starting in verse 3 of chapter 4, the Apostle Peter begins to present the Christian warrior three distinct directives from this passage. If you're taking notes, three exhortations related to the past, present, and future that are essential for the Christian sufferer to remember if they're ever going to win this war against their own flesh. And these three exhortations can be summarized in these next three phrases. Number one, never go back. Number two, never give in. Number three, never give up. Never go back, never give in, never give up. So we're going to look at the first of these three exhortations this morning as we're together. And first exhortation related to the past, Peter says is number one, never go back. Never go back. And we see this in verse 3 of chapter 4. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have worked out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So Peter begins this exhortation of verse 3 by saying, in other words, enough's enough. Enough's enough. Never go back. You've had enough time to walk in trespasses and sins. The time past is sufficient. Archetos, a time passes enough. In fact, more than enough for you to have walked in the ways of the Gentiles. That was so, what's so precious about listening to these baptisms this morning, that it's all saying the same thing. We will not go back. We're not that person anymore. You can never go back to the way you used to be. You can never go back to living your life with the same sins hanging over your head like they once did when you were a heathen. They must be broken with. You must break all of that. There must be some kind of breaking point where once and for all, you allow yourself to realize that you must never again pursue that kind of sinful lifestyle that once held you in its grip. So why does he say that? Why is this now the part of his exhortation? Because he says here in verse 3 with one word, for. For, meaning what he is about to say is a motivation and a reason for the prior statement he just made in verse 1 and 2. Since verse 1b, you are to arm yourself as a good soldier of Jesus Christ to suffer, we must, verse 2, live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. In other words, no longer are they to live craving the lust of men. No longer are they to live desiring the same things that the lost world around them desire. They are to instead pour themselves into living the rest of their life and time on earth for what God loves and what God desires and what God wills. So, Verse 3 then gives the reason why this command to walk away from the lust of men makes so much sense. Reason being, you've already had enough time in the past to do the things you've done. You've already had enough time to seek out the lust of men. You've already had enough time to live like an unbeliever, so it's time you realize you can't go back. Ironically, Peter calls this the lust of men in verse 2 and the desire of the Gentiles in verse 3. And I say it's ironic because the church that he is addressing now is filled with Gentiles, filled with non-Jews who have now placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But Peter doesn't even flinch an eye. He doesn't even hesitate to say, dear Gentiles, don't you realize that your Gentile ways are over? 
Don't you realize that though you might be a Gentile in the flesh, you're no longer to be Gentile in your ways. The past time is enough time. Enough is enough. Those Gentiles believers must have been brought to Christ out of a profoundly heathen lifestyle because this is the lifestyle he's addressing here. The list of sins that we're going to go over this morning goes on to mention that these are sins that they were steeped in, that they were overindulgent in. They, they completely were unrestrained in these areas. In fact, you see that in the second half of verse 3. He goes on to mention exactly what this kind of uh, sin is, this desire of the Gentiles so they can remember what kind of life they came out of. Those sins, those things that define their past, such as a life of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That list is what defined them. That's who they were. That's how they saw themselves. Those are the behaviors that controlled them. And therefore, these are the things that still cry out to them when the prospect of suffering for Christ comes their way. When they're tempted to rebel against worldly authorities, their rebellion can manifest itself in behavior way beyond just the mere refusal to submit to the harsh demands of the authorities. When the emperor demands them to submit to his edict, when the earthly masters are unreasonable with their requests, when they, their unsaved husbands are harsh in their reactions to their fleshly desires, do more than just simply saying no, when they're painted in a corner by the insistence of those earthly authorities around them and they're being forced to comply with unfair demands, they're prone to do much more than simply put down their foot and say, stop bullying me, I'm mad, I'm not going to take it anymore. No, their flesh wants to go way beyond the simple desire to defend themselves. Their flesh wants to rebel against all authority under heaven by diving head deep back into the muck and mire of their old lifestyles. That's why Peter has exhorted them all throughout this letter against much more than just the tendency that they might have to not, or to not acquiesce to unrighteous demands. He has warned them not to return to the life of sin and rebellion that once filled their lives. You see this all through the book, starting in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and evil and slander, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. Chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So when Peter is calling these Gentile believers to suffer in the flesh, think of this, he's asking them to do much more than just turn the other cheek. He's asking them to do much more than just return good for evil and keep their mouths shut when they're being maligned. He's asking them to refuse to return to the entire life of rebellion against God by the indulgences of their flesh. Suffering, like Christ, includes suffering against their desire to resist their fleshly ways. And what are those flesh ways? Well, there's six of them here in the text. Six of them here. First, he says sensuality. Sensuality describes those who were engulfed in unbridled, unrestrained vice of all sorts. It could be translated also debauchery, if that's more helpful, an extensive, excessive indulgence and sensual pleasure. It involves a lack of personal self-restraint. 
So the prominent idea is shameless contact. You cannot return to shameless kinds of behavior. And then he mentions lust, epithemia, which are sinful passions that drive people into self-indulgence. If, if you're taking notes, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, 1 Timothy 6, 9, Jude 18. These kinds of lusts are those depraved cravings and desires that drive men and women into open excess. And he speaks of drunkenness, literally means wine bubbling up and refers to habitual intoxication. It speaks of one who is soaked to overflowing with wine. This term can also refer to the effects of narcotics as well. He speaks of carousing. It says here, first, in participating in wild orgies and parties. One extra biblical Greek source, the term described a band of drunken people that sang loudly and staggered wildly through the streets, causing major public disturbances. So the apostle completed this list of terms with two more expressions that fit this picture of just uncontrolled kind of conduct. And he calls them drinking parties and abominable idolatries. Drinking parties were sessions where people engaged just to get together for the sake of being inebriated. And then abominable idolatries denote the immoral, debauched worship of such gods as like Bacchus, the god of wine that accompanied carousing and drinking parties. I think you get the picture. This is the world that they can no longer define as being a believer in Christ. A believer in Christ resists that life. In January 1915, Lloyd George, prime minister during the First World War, he claimed that Britain was fighting Germans, Austrians, and drink. And as far as I can see, the greatest of those foes, he says, is drink. The Journal of Royal Army Medical Corps did a study of the effects of alcohol consumption on military forces during their conflict in Iraq. Dr. Neil G. Veral looked at the amount of alcohol con- consumption in three categories, pre-deployment, during deployment, and post-deployment. And this is what he found. According to the study, they found that the average soldier increased their alcohol consumption by 28.2% before they were deployed, and as well as 21.1% after they came back from deployment, but that the lowest amount of alcohol was consumed by soldiers was when they were fighting during the fight itself. Think about this. Some believe that that's only true because the amount of alcohol that is allowed to them during those times of of deployment is rationed. But whatever the case might be, soldiers, it seems, consume more alcohol when they're contemplating the battle and after they've engaged in the battle than actually during the battle. Why? Well, because, though some warriors may at times get themselves drunk out of fear before they fight and drown their sorrows after they fight, the average warrior wants to keep their wits about them while they're fighting for their life, right? Because it demands everything. You have to be clear and sharp when you fight. I think that's a good analogy because Peter is here warning all Christian warriors, never go back to civilian lifestyles. Never go back to that because enough is enough. Once you're aware that you're in a war, You need every bit of sobriety possible to fight for your life. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher from the 19th century, laments for us, oh, if you could only get your life back again. But you cannot, not even a moment of it. What is done can never be undone. Could your tears flow forever? Could your zeal no respite? No. 
You cannot undo anything that is done. There, your past life will always stand. If you are a believer in Jesus, the sin of your past life is forgiven. Still, it was your sin. The penalty of it will never be executed. Still, you did have the evil feeling. You did think that rebellious thought. You did say that word. You did commit that transgression. And you did omit the keeping of that precept. There it is, and it cannot be altered. And further, there is no way of making up for the past of your life. Therefore, never go back. Never go back. There's a second exhortation. And the second exhortation given here, but this time it's not related to the past. This exhortation is related to the present. So not only does Peter say, if you want to win this holy war, you must never go back, number one, but also if you want to win this war, number two, we're never to give in. Never go back, and number two, never give in. Look at me, look with me at verse four. He says, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, maligning you. Let's just stop there. They live in a culture of past acquaintances, as you and I do who are literally shocked at the writing of this letter that their friends who once ran with them headlong into sin have now abandoned them for the sake of Christ. Their their friends cannot believe it. They are so filled with rage. They are so angry because of the fact that they commit themselves to spewing lies about them at every turn. They malign you. That goes perfectly with what Pastor John was talking about this morning. They're angry, so they lie. They are, as Peter says, surprised. Surprised meaning to experience a sudden feeling of unexpected wonder. It can be translated to be left with one's mouth open. They're stunned. They're stunned that the time already passed has been enough for you to do what you've done. And they're shocked that you refuse to run with them like a pack of dogs into a life of sin. The word excesses here occurs only... Here in the New Testament, it speaks of a a pouring out like a flood. It's an overflow of ordinary restraints. It's like a wide stream of utter recklessness. It speaks of an uncontrolled nature of those who have fully lost their wits. And they can't believe that you won't dive headlong back into the same uncontrollable dissipation that you once did. That's not a word we use a lot, dissipation in verse 4. It's a noun built on the verb meaning to save with a negative particle, an A, attached to the prefix, giving it the meaning of something not to save, devoid of saving quality. They're surprised that you don't run back with them in those things that cannot help or save. It speaks of a life of just utter recklessness. In Ephesians chapter 5, The noun is used in connection with drunkenness, and then Luke 15, 14, the adjective is used for the riotous living of the prodigal son. This is the idea. It's declaring a wastefulness and destructiveness of a life of sin as if they had plunged themselves into an open sewer, and they can't believe that you don't want to go back. They are shocked. They're shocked, and not at all that they offer you. Peter says they're shocked just as the preamble to their rage about you. Once their surprise wears off, once these people who used to run with and hang with and and party with, once that wears off, once they become aware that your new life isn't just a fad or a stage you're going through, they become aware that the Christian life confronts their sin. It confronts the way they live, so their initial wonder is transformed into war. This is the anger we heard about this morning. 
If you look again at verse 4b, they malign you. You see that? They heap abuse on you. They blaspheme. They, they speak reproachfully against you. They, they ruin your reputation to vilify you, to attack you, to personally attack you and your God as well. They, they don't just hate Christians, but they hate Christ. They hate Christ as well, and they see your resistance to run with them back into that same reckless lifestyle as such an affront, so they speak falsely about every single thing that you stand for to demean you and demoralize you in every way they can possibly think of. And you know what the implication there is? The implication is their outrage and anger will weaken your defenses. The more angry I become at you, the weaker you become that the thrust of their attacks against you who were once like them will seduce you to give away to your convictions and tempt you to join with them once more in their wickedness. If you do not drink as they do, if you do not follow after sinful pleasures as they do, if you will not sing their songs or use their language or laugh at what they laugh at, then they'll hate you and they'll call you a hypocrite. But you can never, Peter says, give in to them. On October 29th, 1941, Great Britain's Prime Minister Winston Churchill visited Harrow School to speak to the students. And it was there that he gave one of the most remarkable, memorable speeches of his life as they were waiting for the next attack from the Germans. He writes, I expect you are beginning to feel impatient that there has been this long lull with nothing particular turning up. But we must learn to be equally good at what is short and sharp and what is long and tough. It is generally said that the British are often better at the last. They do not expect to move from crisis to crisis. They do not always expect that each day will bring up some noble chance of war. But when they very slowly make up their minds that the thing has to be done and the job put through and finished, then even if it takes months, even if it takes years, they do it. And then this lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to the convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. End quote. That's the Christian's cry as well. The Christian's cry is, as the Apostle Peter is teaching us, and a commencement speech, if you will, to us, is to prepare for the attack that is coming. And we can never give in to our past, to our lust, to ourselves. There is a third exhortation that Peter provides for us here. Not only are, as we enter into the spiritual war by never going back and never giving in, lastly, he exhorts us to never give up either to never give up. And you see that, the third point, in verses 5 and 6. Let me read them for you again. But they, meaning those who are surprised that you don't run with them, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For to this the gospel has been proclaimed even to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they live in the spirit according to the will of God. There is here in this section of Scripture a kind of double incentive, if you will, to these spiritual soldiers as Christians. First, he says in verse 5, that not only is it imperative to remember that Gentiles malign you 
today, those same Gentiles that malign you in your work, in your home today, that in the future they will face the judgment of God. But also then he says in verse 6 that our mission in the world is not to give in to their threats against us so that we can preach the gospel to them in the hope that some might be saved. That's the gist of what he's saying. So let's look at this together. Verse 5. He says, first, but they, and as I already said, that they are those who have be, are surprised that they are, you're not running with them. They're, they malign you for their faith. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And of course, him of verse 5 refers to God, but specifically him refers to Christ, to Christ. Christ whom they malign, Christ whom they blaspheme will be the one who will judge them in the end. This is the teaching of the New Testament from the beginning to the very book of Revelation. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. But when the Son of Man, Christ, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will be sep- separate them one from the other as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. John 5:22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. John 5, 27, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Someone might hear this and think, well, wait a second, John three sixteen says, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Yes, in his incarnation. He did not come to judge, but in his return, he is the judge over all mankind. And so Peter says he is ready, ready to do so even now as the one who sees all and knows all perfectly. He's equipped in this moment to bring swift judgment upon those who stand before his judgment throne. That's what he speaks when he says, this judge to whom all malign you now must give an account. And this is not for the pleasure of the Christian. This is not to, to give you some kind of strange glee about, yes, their, their day is coming. It's to produce in you just the hope that God will avenge what has wronged you. Giving an account pictures a court scene, and it implies that when they're brought before this divine sentencing, they're going to find it very, very difficult to defend their lives before the Christ they maligned. They will not be able to speak for themselves. They're not going to be able to malign the ways of God at his throne. They will not be able to even utter a single syllable before the great and mighty Christ, except to know that they are bound to be ushered into hell itself. This is their end. But I say that just so you know, they're not the enemy. And I said that from the very beginning. They're not the enemy. Our flesh is our enemy. They are the mission field. And you see this in verse 6. For to this, the gospel has been proclaimed even to those who are now dead, so that though they were judged in the flesh as men, they live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, some have said, and we talked about this a few uh, Lord's Days ago, some people have said that this is the most difficult verse in the Bible. Uh, Chapter 3, section 18 and following, and this verse. But it doesn't have to be, as we found out. We have ways of looking at the text and just thinking through it. Watch. Peter says, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached. So what's the purpose? Go back to the subject of verse 5, the final judgment. 
So for this purpose, the gospel has been preached, the final judgment. Because the final judgment that is to come to all men, the gospel was preached. Because we know the final judgment is coming, because we know the final judgment is coming to all who refuse to believe, we preached. Because we understand what's going to happen, we proclaim the truth. The vindication that we will receive by knowing that those who blaspheme God and maliciously attacked his people will be ultimately judged is not the only motivation that he gives here. In fact, the, believe, the fact that unbelievers will be judged is also the motivation for the suffering saints to preach the gospel to the men and women of the world. Because we know that judgment is coming, we preached to them. Even in verse 6, to those who are dead, meaning those who are now dead but once were alive when we preached to them, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, in other words, they died, they too died, they now may live in the spirit according to the will of God, meaning that their death did not result in judgment because they heard the gospel and were regenerated by Christ. So the hope of preaching the gospel is to bring men and women to God. And the reason we preach the gospel and undergo pain and suffering and return and refuse to return to our past way of living is because we know that every unbeliever will be judged one day. Therefore, we preach and we preach and we preach so that even when men come to die, they might have life in the spirit according to the will of God and that they would be saved. In other words, we not only have decided to never go back to our past and never give in to their threats, but lastly, never give up on the goal of the gospel in men and women's lives. These same men who malign you now are not your enemy. These same men who slander you might one day become your brother or your sister. Christ suffered so that he might bring us to God, chapter 2, verse 18. Women suffer so that they might win their unbelieving husbands to salvation, chapter 3, verse 1. We're to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of the, your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, that they would be saved, chapter 2, verse 12. Look, none of us were born Christians, right? None of us were born Christians. None of us were brought into the fold from our birth. None, all of us were snatched from the fire. It was the gospel that you fight, you fight for changed our hearts. The gospel that you fought against is the gospel that changed your heart. This is the gospel that you suffer for that changes your enemies into friends. So don't give up in the midst of war. Don't give up as you're listening to the television or to a podcast or the radio with the foolishness that you hear coming from people and the vanity and the lies because God might save them. They're not your enemy. They're your ministry. Carl F. H. Henry, great theologian, said this on one of his last visits to Southern Seminary before his death. He, he was asked if he saw any hope in the coming generation of evangelicals, and this was his reply. Why? You speak as though Christianity were genetic. He said, of course there is hope for the next generation of evangelicals, but the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They're probably still pagans. Who knew that Saul of Tarsus was to be the great apostle of the Gentiles? Who knew that God would raise up a C.S. Lewis? They were unbelievers who once saved by the grace of God were mighty warriors in the faith. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the next Jonathan Edwards 
might be a man driving in front of you with a coexisting bumper sticker on his car. The next R.C. Sproul might be a misogynist, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next John MacArthur might be passed out drunk in a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for Gay Pride March right now. But the Spirit of God can turn all of that around, and it seems like that's what gives God joy to do. Remember, the new birth doesn't just transform lives. It creates repentance and faith and provides new leadership to the church and fulfills Jesus' promise to gift his church with everything she needs for her onward march. So relax, relax, and be kind to that atheist in front of you on the highway. The one who just you know, gave you an obscene gesture. Because he might be the person that evangelizes your grandchildren one day. You see? Peter also would say, never give up. They aren't the enemy. They're the mission field. That's the real war that you fight. There's a creed in our country's armed forces that soldiers are required to recite. It's called the Soldier's Creed. It's a powerful testimony of the convictions of a man or woman in their service to the cause of protecting this country and their freedoms. And though it's a precious statement concerning the might of a soldier, I've changed some of the wording around to act as our conclusion this morning. This is the Christian soldier's creed. I am a Christian soldier. I am a warrior and a member of a team. I serve the Son of the Most High God and live in army values. I will always place the mission first. I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. I am disciplined, physically and mentally tough, trained and proficient in my warrior task and drills. I always maintain my arms, my equipment, and myself. I am an expert and I am a professional. I stand ready to deploy, engage, destroy the enemies of my soul in close combat. I am a garden of freedom and the Christian way of life. I am a Christian soldier. Let that be our creed. Let's pray. Father, the war is not just outside of us. The war that we are accountable to is the war that wages within us. Father, we all understand this. There's not a soul here today that desires to be what they once were, but there still is sin, and there still is proclivity and tendency to return to those things that once we were proud of and to do it in shame. That's why your word calls it vomit. Father, we just ask that you would use this lesson in each one of our lives to help us in this spiritual war to redirect our ship to go into a different direction if we feel ourselves going downstream, if we're going with the tide, help us to go in reverse, to never give up, to never let in, to never ever, God, do anything that would discourage our own assurance of our faith in you and prepare us to be that kind of man and woman, Christian soldier who the world sees and is mystified by, the ones that malign us and scratch their heads at us and call us fools, let us be prepared to pray and to evangelize so that in your mercy, if you choose, that you would make them brothers and sisters of our family. We ask you to give us insight into these things and moral courage. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.